The business meeting will come to order, and I want to thank everybody for being here. I think what we're going to do, uh, I think everyone understands we've got some nominations that likely uh, will be decided on very quickly. Um, I'm going to go ahead and introduce that portion of the meeting. I know Senator Menendez has a few comments to make, and if members show up and we can vote, we will. Otherwise, we'll move to the AUMF hearing and just move away from that once we have a quorum here uh, to be able to, to deal with the nominations. Um, today, nominations-wise, we have Mr. Francis R. Fannin to be Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources, Mr. Jonathan R. Cohen to be the Deputy Representative to the United Nations and Representative to the General Assembly of the United Nations. We have Mr. David Kornstein to be Ambassador to Hungary. We have Mr. Elliot Pedrose to be Alternate, alternate Executive Director to the Inter-American Development Bank and the Honorable Jackie Walcott to be representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency and representative to the Vienna Office of the United Nations. With that, I'd like to, rec to recognize our distinguished ranking member and my friend, Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I uh, just want to say that the Democrats are here ready to vote on the President's nominees, so, uh, <laughs> so let, it be, let it be reflected in the record. I'm glad that, you're in that, another good mood. That, <laughs> I said it with a smile, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm pleased with many of the nominees before us today, and I intend to vote in favor of all of them but one. But before I do so, I want to discuss uh, the recent controversy concerning our newly confirmed ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, as well as the importance of vetting nominees that come before this committee. On April 26, 2018, shortly before Mr. Grinnell was confirmed by the Senate, I spoke on the floor about his nomination. I noted that Germany is a key NATO ally, not only for our security, but for the values we hold dear as a country. And I discussed Mr. Grinnell's willingness to retweet DNC emails stolen by Russian intelligence, essentially doing Vladimir Putin's work for him, which is, in my mind, unbelievable. This tweet came on top of an extensive history of derogatory comments about women over Twitter. On the floor of the Senate, I stated that these tweets showed his bad judgment and that he is publicly contributing his own brand of toxic political discourse. They're not the actions of a diplomat, and I express my concern about whether he would do such things if confirmed when he went to Germany. Mr. Grinnell's actions on his first day as ambassador prove my concerns were well-founded. Within hours of presenting his credentials to German President Steinmeier and following President Trump's withdrawal of the United States from the JCPOL, Mr. Grinnell tweeted that, quote, German companies doing business in Iran should wind down operations immediately. This didn't go over well in Germany. Many Germans immediately condemned Mr. Grinnell's tweet as offensive and inappropriate. It was perceived as the United States giving orders. Uh, Mr. Chairman, this is not effective diplomacy, and this is not how one treats one of America's longstanding allies. Mr. Uh, Ambassador Grinnell's aggressive posture towards his German host stands in star sharp contrast to the approach taken by Ambassador Huntsman in Russia. Last week, Ambassador Huntsman announced his attendance at the St. Petersburg Economic Forum and has encouraged American business leaders to attend as well. The U.S. Embassy produced an online video promoting U.S. businesses at the forum, the kind of video you would expect to see from an ambassador to one of our closest allies, for example, Germany. Several Russian individuals on the U.S. sanctions list will be in attendance at the St. Petersburg Forum, including Viktor Vekelsberg, a Russian oligarch who was sanctioned on April 6. So in my mind, what kind of message uh, in this, is this administration sending by attacking our allies 
while acting as though there is nothing amiss in our relationship with Moscow. If Mr. Grinnell's actions have demonstrated anything, it's the importance of properly vetting the nominees that come before the committee. Uh, and uh, to that extent, Mr. Chairman, uh, I have comments about all of the other nominees we're considering today, which I intend to support. I'd ask that they be included in the record, uh, except Without for objection. one that I want to speak to. Finally, um, Frank Fannin. His considerable energy policy experience, but I do not think his experience represents the American public's best interests. He has spent most of his career advocating for what is in the best interest of one of the most polluting industries on the planet, the oil and gas industries. He's lobbied against comprehensive climate change legislation, against tighter regulation of cigarette and tobacco products, against the offshore drilling moratorium in the Gulf of Mexico, instated, uh, ins which was uh, ins uh, put forth immediately after Deepwater Horizon disaster. And perhaps most concerning to me, he lobbied against my Big Oil Preve Bailout Prevention Act, a bill to vastly improve oil industry and accountability and liability for damages to the environment, economy, and public health. Energy security rests in energy diversification, innovation, and development of zero and low carbon energy sources. The appointment of an oil and gas lobbyist to this position demonstrates a backwards outlook on energy policy. So while I vote to advance the nominations of Ms. Wilcott, Kornstein, Pedrosa, and Mr. Cohen, I'll be voting against Mr. Fannin's nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity. Um, well, thank you for that. Are there any other comments? Are we ready to move to a vote? Um, would you like to we'll go ahead and have a roll call vote on Fannin? I, I can do a voice vote. Voice vote? Okay. So um, do we have a motion uh, to favor report all nominations and block by voice vote? So moved. Second. Second. Um, all those in favor say so moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to report favorably the nominations. All in favor will say aye. Aye. Opposed? Mr. Chairman, just I will be aye on all. Would you please uh, have me listed as no on Mr. Fannin? Would anyone else like to be recorded that way? Mr. Chairman, the same position. Senator Merkley? Anybody else? We're good. The nominations uh, all pass and are agreed to with the two negative votes recorded. I understand also that Senator Barrasso has asked that he be permitted to enter a statement on the Fannin nomination on the record without objection. Um, we'll have that so ordered. That completes the committee's business. I ask unanimous consent that staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes. Without objection, so ordered. And with that, without objection, the committee will stand adjourned. The business committee will stand adjourned. Um, and we will move on to the hearing before us. We thank our witnesses. We thank our witnesses uh, for suffering through a business meeting and uh, for being here. Um, they're here to share their expertise on SJ Res 59 legislation recently introduced uh, by myself, Senators Kane, Flake, Coons, Young, and Nelson. The bipartisan legislation would replace the 2001 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force with an updated AUMF against Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, the Islamic State in Iraq, and Syria. It's a result of years of work and bipartisan negotiations that began in the 113th Congress when I first became ranking member of the committee, and the chairman I know pursued uh, this for some time, and we had votes on other AUMFs. I thank him for his efforts in that regard. Since then, we've held at least seven public full committee hearings on authorizations for the use of military force. Today will be our fourth such hearing on this topic in the last year, and in addition to a classified briefing and a number of other 
meetings. Since last June, we've heard testimony from legal scholars, policy experts, and secretaries of state and defense twice. During the drafting process, the administration outlined the following principles for any AUMF considered by Congress. Number one, an AUMF must not sunset. Number two, it must not be geographically constrained. And number three, it must be enacted before repeal of the 2001 or 2002 AUMFs. The proposal that is before us, or the one that we're discussing today, adheres to all three of those requests. After we introduced our AUMF, we held a full committee discussion with a State Department legal uh, advisor. Um, and I, I just want to say that meeting, which we held off the record in 116, where we do so much of our, our discussion, I thought was one of the best discussions we've had on an AUMF. And I think uh, one of the reasons that the ranking member and others have requested uh, that we have the legal scholars we have here today to flesh out some of those issues. In particular, I want to thank Senators Flake, Kane, and Young for their leadership and hard work on this legislation. As we all know, the current administration, just like the Obama administration, believes that it does not need any additional authorization to use force against al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or, I or ISIS. And just for what it's worth, I agree. I agree 100 percent. I, th I thought the Obama administration had all the legal authority they needed to conduct the operations that were underway. I feel like this administration uh, has exactly the same. But I also believe strongly that Congress should play a greater role in authorizing the use of force by enacting a new AUMF. The current AUMF is nearly 17 years old. There is widespread discontent that Congress has been un unable to update it. And there's a high risk that we, that we will do so in an irresponsible manner by simply sunsetting at some point the, the 01 AUMF. There's also a growing risk the further we get from September 11, 2001, that the courts could call into question or lament the existing authorization. We should take the opportunity, in my opinion, now after years of discussion and debate in our committee to update the current authorities in a responsible manner. The current AUMF requires the administration to trace terrorist groups back to the 9-11 attacks, which involves, let's face it, some legal stretching, as we saw in the justification for the fight against ISIS. This AUMF updates the authority and clearly allows the president to continue the fight, to fight derivatives of terrorist groups as they morph and change their name, whether or not they were around in 2001. Less than 25% of the current members of Congress were here when Congress voted on the 2001 AUMF. As a result, members were able to simply criticize the administration, whichever one happened to be in office at the time, and not bear any responsibility. This AUMF would ensure that Congress remains involved in these decisions, but does not hamstring the administration. Our legislation gives the administration the flexibility to flexibility necessary to win this fight while strengthening the rightful and necessary role of Congress, and I believe it is the best chance we have to finally address this issue in a constructive way. I want to thank both of our witnesses and the members of this committee for their seriousness uh, on this issue which, with which they approach the topic before us today, and I hope that together we can have a productive discussion and a way forward. With that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member. Thank you, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank both of our witnesses for being here today. I look forward to your testimony. 
And Mr. Chairman, I appreciate you accommodating my and other members' requests for these types of public hearings, both from this private panel, uh, as well as the opportunity to press Secretary of State Pompeo on these issues next week, which I understand we'll have two rounds at. That's right. And let me start off by saying I appreciate the work that you uh, and Senator Kane, uh, Senator Flake, and others have done to try to move this issue forward and to advance an AUMF. As someone who has drafted these in the past, I know it's extremely hard and it is challenging. And I certainly appreciate Senator Kane's incredible commitment and drive to have the Congress uh, put the support of uh, the American people behind our troops, so I appreciate that. Authorizing the use of military force is the most important vote that any member of Congress can take. It is a vote to send America's sons and daughters into harm's way, and I do not take that responsibility lightly. Throughout my career, I have voted in favor of some authorizations. After the 9-11 attacks in 2001, against Syria in 2013, against ISIS in 2014, and I have voted against others, including the Iraq War Authorization in 2002. Each time I cast my vote, I carefully examine all of the facts and weigh the risks of using force. Before we authorize force, we must consider three issues. First, is military action necessary to advance and protect the national security interests of the United States? Second, we need a clear strategy to pursue our diplomatic and political goals and to understand how military action advances our interests, including realistic timeframes. And lastly, we need to understand what authorities the Commander-in-Chief expects that he or she will need from Congress to achieve uh, end threats and end threats to the United States and protect our security. Congress has an explicit constitutional role here, and we cannot simply outsource these decisions to the President. As I have said many times, I'm not comfortable with this administration or the last administration's reliance on the 9-11 AUMF and the 2002 Iraq AUMF to pursue new enemies in different countries and under completely different circumstances than existed when those authorities were granted. Congress passed the 2001 AUMF to counter al-Qaeda in the wake of September 11th attacks. No member could have foreseen that we will still be acting under its authority 17 years later. I do not believe that it provides the authority to justify an endless war. To be clear, I do not doubt that actions to defend our country against attack are necessary, but new actions require new and appropriate authorizations. Indeed, as chairman of this committee in 2014, I proposed and voted for an AUMF that would have provided a path for doing that. And as I said in 2014, when Secretary of State John Kerry testified before this committee, on my proposed AUMF to combat ISIS, we are the check and balance on executive power. And if we abandon that role, then we will have done a grave disservice to the American people. Unfortunately, I'm concerned that Senate Joint Resolution 59 may do precisely that. I am concerned that it reverses the roles the Constitution gave to the executive and legislative branches. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of the U.S. Constitution grants Congress the power to declare war. The resolution before us would put that power substantially in the hands of the President instead by giving the executive wide latitude to decide with minimal oversight which groups are associated forces of al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and ISIS. It would give him or her wide latitude to use force in another country. And perhaps most alarmingly, it would give the President, this one and ones who will come after him, the ability to do so indefinitely with no time limitations. 
Now, some have argued that this text at least gives the Congress some visibility and some control more than it has now. I find these arguments unsatisfying. I fear that, in fact, the transparency measures in this text are not much different from what we have now. And I fear this resolution would give the executive branch the keys to the kingdom to decide against whom we wage war, when and where. Only by a supermajority vote to disapprove could Congress bring to an end military action the president has already begun. In short, I fear this text provides the appearance of congressional control through procedures to disapprove while not actually providing any meaningful check on the executive's ability to wage war. Which brings me to my broader point. I cannot in good conscience put my imprimatur on a text that codifies and blesses an endless forever war in which we are already engaged. Now, I do think there are ways this text could be changed to make it acceptable, to restore the proper roles of the Congress and the executive, to provide a sunset so that Congress can meaningfully evaluate whether military action is still needed, to provide limits on the deployment of ground troops without additional authorization, and generally to put some guardrails on a president's ability to wage a forever war. I'll conclude by saying that placing restrictions or a time frame in an AUMF with the ability to reauthorize does not send a message of weakness to our enemies. I believe it's just the opposite. In forging a united front between the president, Congress, and the American people, our enemies will know of our resolve and that there are no domestic fractures to exploit. We can give the commander-in-chief the authority he needs to do our part in the multinational effort to defeat terrorist extremism and other threats and protect the American people, the American homeland, and American interests. And we can do it without delegating our constitutional role to the president. I look forward to our conversation, Mr. Chairman, and thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and we look to our witnesses to bring all of this together. Uh, and resolve this long-standing issue. I know that's actually not going to be the case, and I know that each of you are going to tease out uh, very differing issues. We find ourselves, I, I thought those comments were very consistent with Senator Menendez's leadership back in 2014 and some members of our committee's uh, concerns. Um, you have a, before you a, a, uh, an approach to try to pull the two together, and then we have a uh, an authorization that's been in place since 2001 where certainly the president and his administration can do whatever they wish at any time, any place, with almost any group. So it's an interesting place that we're trying to, to uh, get to here. Our first witness in helping us do so is the Honorable John B. Bellinger III, the former State Department legal advisor from 2005 to 2009. Before that, he was legal advisor to the National Security Council from 2001 to 2005. Our second witness is Ms. Rita M. Simeon, Inter International Legal Counsel at Human Rights First, Adjunct Professor of, of Law at the Georgetown University Law Center and Associate Adjunct Professor of Law at the American University of Washington College of Law. We thank you both very much for being here. If you would summarize your comments in about five minutes, any written materials you have will be entered into the record without objection. Uh, and then, obviously, we look forward to many questions. We thank you both again for, for being here. Go ahead, John. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. It's nice to be back. Uh, I'm glad you haven't tired of having me before you, uh, but it's a privilege to be here again. 
Mr. Chairman, I especially want to commend you um, and Senator Kane uh, for your determined efforts over the last several years to forge a bipartisan consensus on a new authorization to use military force. I know it's not been easy, and I certainly know it's not politically advantageous, but your work is important and it represents good constitutional government. Uh, and I'm very pleased uh, that Senators Flake, Coons, Young, and uh, Nelson are co-sponsors uh, of the resolution before us, and I want to rank, uh, recognize Ranking Member Menendez for his efforts when he was chairman to report an AUMF that had focused uh, just on ISIS back in 2014. And Senator Cardin, uh, you were ranking uh, when I testified before this committee back in uh, June and discussed the parameters for a new AUMF. Um, as the committee knows, I was involved in drafting both the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs when I was in the White House, um, and then later when I was State Department legal advisor, I engaged on an almost daily basis in discussions about the legal issues relating to use of military force, including detention arising under both of these AUMFs. I have long advocated revising the 2001 AUMF in order to update it to address terrorist threats that have emerged after 9-11 and to clarify its parameters. An updated AUMF is legally important to give our military clear statutory authority to fight terrorist groups that threaten the United States, and it's constitutionally important to demonstrate that Congress has authorized and supports the actions our military is taking rather than simply acquiescing in increasingly strained executive branch interpretations of the 2001 AUMF enacted 17 years ago. SJ Res 59 is fully consistent with the parameters that I recommended when I testified last June, uh, and more importantly, uh, with the three prerequisites uh, articulated by Secretary of Defense Mattis and Secretary of State Tillerson in their testimony last October. I believe it appropriately balances the need for the President and our military to have a broad and flexible congressional authorization to use force against terrorist groups that threaten the United States today and balances those with the understandable concerns of Congress uh, from both members of both parties uh, not to authorize an entirely open-ended uh, use of force. It authorizes all necessary and appropriate force against the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and associated forces designated by the President. It specifically lists five groups as associated forces and allows the President to designate additional entities other than a sovereign nation that fall within the statutory definition. It's not geographically limited, but it does require the President to notify Congress within 48 hours of using force in a country other than Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, and Libya. It does not include a sunset, but it does include a quadrennial congressional review requirement. It specifically provides that the authorization to use force under both the 2001 AUMF and the new resolution includes the authority to detain members of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and designated associated forces, and it requires congressional reports while allowing the executive branch to provide certain information in classified form. I believe that this bill is a clear improvement over the 2001 AUMF with respect to the concerns of both the executive and Congress. 
important from an executive branch perspective, it removes the limitation in the 2001 AUMF to use force only against the persons, nations, or organizations that planned, authorized, aided, or committed the 9-11 attacks, and it clearly authorizes the use of force against ISIS and groups or organizations that are associated forces of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. It also provides clear statutory detention authority for members of these groups, which is important from an executive branch perspective. But important from a congressional perspective, it includes a statutory definition for the first time of associated forces. Reporting requirements before new associated forces or new countries are added, and expedited congressional review procedures for the addition of new associated forces or countries and on a quadrennial basis. It does not authorize the president to designate a sovereign nation as an associated force. Now, I'm well aware of concerns that have been raised by some members of Congress and some commentators about authorizing a broad new congressional authorization to use force that might extend what some consider to be a forever war. There are obviously ways to address these concerns through different kinds of authorizations or a more restrictive authorization. But a more restrictive authorization would not give our military the flexibility that they need and would not gain the support of the executive branch. So SJ Res 59 represents, in my view, a reasonable compromise that balances the needs and concerns of both the executive branch and Congress. And some, Mr. Chairman, Senator Kane, and the co-sponsors, I want to thank you for producing what I believe is a strong, balanced, and bipartisan authorization to use force against terrorist groups an updated AUMF to replace the 2001 AUMF is both legally and constitutionally important, and I urge the committee to approve it and to recommend it to the full Senate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ms. Simeon. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Menendez, for the invitation to be here today. After nearly 17 years of war, it is appropriate for Congress to be reasserting its control over where, when, against whom, the nation uses military force. In particular, I commend the chairman and Senator Kane and many others from Senator Flake, Senator Young, Senator Paul, uh, the ranking member, and Senator Cardin uh, for their tireless efforts on this issue. Deciding when to authorize military force is Congress's most solemn responsibility. Authorizing war sends American men and women into harm's way and allows the president to use exceptional powers that if not appropriately cabined, can infringe on core American freedoms and values. The framers of our Constitution entrusted Congress with deciding when the nation should go to war. If Congress is persuaded that the use of military force is necessary, it must ensure that any new authorization does not cede Congress's power over such decisions in the future. As the past 17 years have shown, AUMFs that do not include adequate safeguards risk embroiling the nation in conflict around the world, from Niger to the Philippines, without public debate or a vote in Congress. So while I very much appreciate the good intentions, the hard work, and the frustrations with the status quo under the 2001 AUMF that are behind this proposal, it is important not to mince words about what this AUMF would do. This legislation would authorize the use of military force against at least eight groups. It names Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Shabaab, 
al-Qaeda in Syria, including al-Nusra, the Haqqani Network, and al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. It contains no geographic limits and affirmatively authorizes force in at least six countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, and Libya. This authority would not be limited to drone strikes or special forces raids in these countries. It would authorize full-scale ground wars. Now, many members of this committee may believe that authorizing military force against some of these groups is indeed necessary. But this proposal would not stop there. It would also cede Congress's power over such decisions in the future by giving the President, not Congress, the authority to decide to use force against unnamed additional groups that he deems associated, as well as in unnamed additional countries, all without authorization from Congress. This would flip the war powers framework designed by our nation found, nation's founders on its head, upsetting the careful balance of powers in our Constitution. Congress would need a supermajority in both houses to deauthorize the president's decision to use force. With no sunset, the legislation would cede Congress's power to the president indefinitely with the potential to remain in place for decades. The quadrennial review and expedited procedures for voting to disapprove the president's new wars or to repeal the authorization, while helpful, are far outweighed by the dangers of such a broad and indefinite surrender of Congress's power to the president. Such upending of our Constitution is not only unwise, it is also unnecessary. While Congress is right to be mindful of the evolving nature of terrorist organizations and the risk of gridlock in Congress, neither warrants such a departure from our Constitution. Congress has repeatedly demonstrated its ability to authorize force within mere days when it believes that it is necessary. There is a better way forward. There is widespread support among national security experts that any new AUMF should name the specific enemy or enemies, set out the permitted mission objectives for using force, list the countries where force may be used, require robust transparency, ensure compliance with our international legal obligations, repeal overlapping authorizations, and set an expiration date. I applaud efforts by this committee to craft an AUMF that contains these safeguards. In particular, I commend the efforts of Senator Merkley, who I understand is finalizing the text of a new AUMF that based on principles that he released just this morning would include all of these critical and essential safeguards. These protections are not merely nice to have. They are essential for preventing any new AUMF from being used beyond Congress's intent or in ways that undermine human rights, national security, or the careful balance of powers under our Constitution. Thank you, and I very much look forward to your questions. Thank you both very much. Uh, I'm going to ask some, just some brief questions. Before I do it, I, my name keeps mention, being mentioned. Um, I happen to be chairman of the committee, and we're allowed to take work that other people do and hopefully try to make it a little bit better. I, I just want to thank Senator Flake and Kane for wandering in the wilderness for years um, and bringing us to a point where we're actually having a real debate about this. Both of you have done tremendous work. Others on the committee, uh, uh, even with differing views, very differing views, have been highly involved, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, Mr. Bellinger, 
Some have argued that our new AMF somehow flips the Constitution on our head. A other witness just said so. By allowing the president to declare war against new groups and new countries, as a legal matter, is this correct? Thanks, Mr. Chairman. I don't think that is correct. Uh, the uh, war powers are shared between uh, the Congress and the president. Uh, the Congress does have the power to share uh, to declare war, but the president has uh, a broad authority as commander in chief and chief executive. And the key point here is that the president has been has been exercising these for the last 16 or 17 years. So. If the concern is that we are actually changing something by flipping it on its head, why it's, you can say, well, it's codifying what the president has been doing, but the president has, in fact, been exercising all of these authorities. And my point is this is actually useful from a congressional perspective because it does rein in the president to a certain extent by defining associated forces. Yeah, Fed three presidents actually doing that. After a transition period, our new AUMF would replace the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, which have been the legal basis for countless military actions over the last 16 years. In your opinion, does the new AUMF provide sufficient protection against legal uncertainty? I know that's been a concern, and you know, I spent eight years as a lawyer in the executive branch working very closely with the Justice Department. There have been lots of challenges, particularly on detention. It is a theoretical concern that one has to look at, but I think that the uh, uh, that Senator Kane and you and your staff have clearly, clearly put in protections to ensure that there is uh, continuity, that there's no expiration of authority, uh, and that the repeal of the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs is not going to affect any of our operations. If you want to add legislative history as well to make it even clearer, I think it's fine, but I don't think it's necessary. I think statutorily it's quite clear that, this, that Congress intends this to be clear and uninterrupted authority. Thank you. Ms. Simeon, um, it's, it's clear that an AUMF, or at least it's clear today that any AUMF, will not be, become law if it includes a sunset provision. Um, just the balance of power here within Congress, that is not going to happen. It's not a reality. Um, is there any version of an AUMF that uh, you could support that doesn't have a sunset provision in it? I think a sunset provision um, is absolutely critical to preventing what we have seen, as many folks have described already today, under the 2001 AUMF, where successive um, executive branch administrations have been able to stretch and stretch the authorization far beyond what Congress uh, intended or imagined. Um, so there are many safeguards that are necessary to ensure that that doesn't uh, happen, but an expiration date is absolutely critical to critical to doing so. And I think that um, if Congress is not able to reach uh, a compromise with, uh, within Congress or with the administration on doing so, uh, it's actually better off not passing a new authorization at this time and taking other steps to reassert Congress's role vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch. Thank you. Uh, Senator Menendez, I'm going to reserve the rest of my time and go ahead and move to you. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, this is a letter I have by a variety of organizations expressing their opinions on this legis legislation that has to be included in the record. Uh, without objection. Uh, thank you both for your testimony. Mr. Bellinger, I heard your answer to the Chairman's first question. And in essence, what you said is largely that's what's been going on anyhow. Well, that is not the standard under which we should pass an AUMF to authorize that which is going on anyhow, from my view. I, 
I, I may have, I may not be the strongest reader, but Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of the United States Constitution grants Congress the power to declare war. So just because something has been going on doesn't mean that that is the very essence of why we should pass something that ratifies what's going on. Is that a fair statement? I think it's, it's uh, over many decades, Congress has accepted that the president has very broad authority. We discussed this at the hearing on North Korea uh, in December, and the president, succession of presidents have been given broad authority to do a lot of things uh, without a congressional authorization. In this case, uh, it would actually micromanage what the president does if one were to require the president every time he were to uh, uh, add a new country, add a new group. Uh, You're saying uh, this authorization that's proposed micromanages? The this, this does not, but, oh, the, not. Okay. But, the, but the proposals to say that the only way uh, for Congress not to delegate its authority would be for Congress to approve each new group, each new country. I think one, as a practical matter, I don't see that likely as happening, but I leave that to you as to whether so you that think. basically means we just let the president continue to expand, whoever the president is on any given Well, I think that's what's the advantage of this new authorization. But he, ex he expands first, and then by a supermajority of the United States uh, Congress, you would have to nullify his expansion if you believe that his expansion was inappropriate. Well, again, this gets back is to that, Is that not the case, though? It, it, it does, but, but an important point here, it restricts by statute the associated forces that the president can add with a clear definition which does not exist now. It's those, ex it's those extensive powers that you were referring to before that actually worries us about how he would define that. Let me ask Ms. Simeon, uh, I just want to make sure I got this right. When it comes to determining who is a new associated group of al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, this proposed AUMF reverses the presumption of who will authorize force. Under this proposal, it would take at the very least 60 votes in the Senate to disapprove the use of force, and more realistically, assuming a president had made that decision and felt that he was right in the decision, it would take a veto-proof majority, which would uh, make it a supermajority. Does this not reverse the constitutional requirement that Congress declare war and authorize force, subverting it so that the president has that privilege and Congress can only try to stop him? So that's exactly right. Under our constitutional system, it's right, as uh, Mr. Bellinger said, that war powers are shared between the president and Congress, but they are shared in that Congress decides to go to war. Who are we going to go to war with when and where? The president then has the power to prosecute that war. Under this authorization, the president would have the power to make such decisions, not Congress, and as you said, it would require a supermajority after the president has already begun using force in new countries or against new groups to stop it. And while I, I appreciate the uh, concerns about operational flexibility that I believe are behind uh, this mechanism, I want to remind members that not just after 9-11, when Congress came together and passed a new authorization within three days, Congress has repeatedly done so within a matter of days when it thought that the use of force was necessary, and that over the past 17 years, 
uh, the executive branch has believed that force was necessary against only five or six additional groups. So this is not such a rapidly evolving, changing context where such a delegation of power is actually necessary. I think it's perfectly reasonable for the president to come back to Congress every few years if it believes that force is necessary against a new group, and Congress can then choose to authorize force against that group, so perhaps me, even with expedited procedures. Let me ask you one other question. This resolution, 59, also allows the president to initiate U.S. military force in new foreign countries against a targeted group. And I know, for example, the White House statement on May the 8th withdrawing the United States from the JCPOA stated that the Taliban and al-Qaeda were proxies of Iran. So taking together the granting uh, to the president the ability to name new associated forces and to initiate military force against them in a new foreign country, could you see a danger that this AUMF could be used by a president to use force against the Iranian IRGC in Iran and therefore start a war with Iran? Yeah, so I think that there is a danger with AUMFs that are overbroad that the president will interpret them in expansive and unforeseen ways. Um, as an attorney, I don't believe that this AUMF actually provides that authority, uh, at least in terms of adding nation states as an associated force. It explicitly says that nation states cannot be added as an associated force. However, it's also important to be crystal clear that this authorization does not in any way restrict the president from going to war using Article II authority to use force against nation states but it could go outside of my, that my, mechanism. My final point, but I'm not suggesting that he can go against a nation state, but if, in fact, he, he says that Taliban and al-Qaeda are proxies of Iran and wants to pursue those or any other entities in another country, there is no, there is no provision that stops him from pursuing those entities in another country. Yeah, I, I think that there is a real danger of the kind of creative executive branch lawyering that we've seen under the 2001 AUMF that could use that definition uh, for using force in situations like that. Again, I don't think that that would be an appropriate reading, but I think that there is reason to be concerned uh, that the president might try to do so. Thank you. But I, I still have a few minutes before I turn to Senator Rich. I'm just going to, you know, the first sentence of this resolution we're looking at, to authorize the use of military force against the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, and designated associated forces, on and on. We are exercising our constitutional rights. If we pass this, this is the biggest red herring I've ever heard in my life. We would be authorizing the use of military force. And I just find some of these liberal groups and the way they're attacking this as almost hilarious, okay? It's hilarious. Secondly, if the president decides he wants to go into Yemen or some other place, it takes a supermajority to stop it today. If we decided if you took up a, a bill to stop us from doing something, the president would veto it, we would have to have a supermajority. So this is, this is almost humorous with that Senator Risch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, clearly, this is one of the most uh, important and sobering things that we do. And um, it, it, it needs deep, deep thought. Uh, the good news is, is we have had some experience now over, over recent years as to how an, a, how an AUMF works or doesn't work. Um, one, of the, one of the real problems, I think, that we've wrestled with is 
we as a culture have grown up thinking about war uh, as uh, actions between our country, uh, a state actor, and other countries as a state actor. And since the last part of the last century, mostly the last decade, we've learned that our enemies aren't necessarily uh, coalesced into a, uh, a state. Uh, they are a group affiliated with perhaps a radical religious organization or something like that that knows no boundaries. And so uh, I, I think this has got to be weighed heavily as far as the actual text that, that we pass. Um, you know, the Founding Fathers were, were incredibly blessed with the wisdom to give us, first of all, three branches of government, and then secondly, uh, separating the uh, military from the civilian uh, part of our government. I, I think that that was a genius. Uh, having said that, I don't think that they intended uh, that uh, th this separation be such that, that it can't be worked out. I think that's the beauty of our Constitution is it does give us the flexibility to do the kinds of things that we're wrestling here and wrestling with a, a, a new concepts that, that are really foreign to us because we've, we've learned about how wars are, are, are fought in a different era than what we're living in today. So thus we have uh, the text in front of us. Mr. Bellinger, um, who serves in your capacity today at the White House uh, dealing with this sort of thing? Is there an individual such as yourself? There is, so I served in two capacities. The White House is the NSC legal advisor, and there is a person who has served, a former Justice Department lawyer who joined the Trump administration. His name is John Eisenberg. And at the State Department, there's a wonderful new legal advisor who the uh, chairman mentioned, uh, uh, Jennifer Newstead, confirmed by this committee, uh, and who's doing a very good job as legal advisor at the State Department. Both of them are dealing with these issues. So, so um have you, have you vetted this text with them? Have you sat down with them and talked with them about these? Uh, I have talked with uh, the State Department, the office that I formerly headed, including Ms. Newstead. I think you've had more detailed conversations with her, and so I wouldn't want to speak for them. I, I will tell you my general perception of the administration's view, but they will tell you directly, is that they are not asking for a new authorization, largely because they are concerned that Congress may come up with something worse. Uh, if you would give them a new authorization uh, that would be an improvement over the 2001 one, it would, they would be happy to have it for two reasons. And again, this is my view. You should obviously ask them directly. One, and I think you heard Secretary Mattis say this, it would be a good thing, and Senator Kane, I know this has been your point for several years, it would be a good thing for this Congress to authorize the war that our military is actually fighting. And when Congress is not doing that, it appears that Congress is not backing the war. And so Secretary Mattis has said that would be a helpful thing. Legally, and this is very important, and I know it's been an important point for Senator Young, we really do have a legal problem with the 2001 AUMF. Uh, it is not, it does not clearly authorize the detention uh, of people who are being captured today. And as, as the chairman mentioned in his opening remarks, it's gonna get worse over time. There is a member of ISIS detained right now in Iraq who has sued uh, Secretary Mattis saying, you don't have authority to hold me uh, under the 2001 AUMF because I didn't commit the 9-11 attacks. So 
this is going to get worse over time. So there are legal problems uh, with the current AUMF, and I think the administration, if the Congress would pass a good new one, would be happy to have it. That's, that's my view of the administration's uh, uh, position. I, I get that, and, I, and I, the, the, the thought that's gone into this is, uh, is good. I, th these boundaries, just it, if you get somebody like Osama bin Laden who goes and hides in a country X, and it's not on the list, and all of a sudden you find him there. The president's got to have the authority to go get him. And I think that the language you have covers that. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. Okay, thank you. And I, um, I, I hope we're going to hear from the administration directly, yeah. Mr. Chairman. But th thank you so much for your work on this, Mr. Ballinger. On that note, uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo will be in next Thursday. And uh, he, I talked with him yesterday on the phone. He's fully prepared. We're going to have two rounds of questions to answer any and all questions, mostly with budget presentations. No one asks any questions about the budget. My guess is both rounds will be used for other policy issues. Um, I, I'll just, Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate that, and I appreciate both of our witnesses being here. Uh, I want to learn from the past. We were attacked on September the 11th. Within days, Congress passed the authorization for the use of military force. And I must tell you, I thought it was pretty specific, because the action words said, authorized, committed, or aided. I don't know how we could have restricted it more than that. It was clearly aimed at a military operation in Afghanistan authorizing the use of force in Afghanistan. So much so that a few months later, when President Bush wanted to use force in Iraq, he sought a separate authorization from Congress. They never attempted to use the 2001 authorization for our military campaign in Iraq, where there was probably more direct contact to the attack on our country than what we're using the authorization today for. So I voted for the 2001, and I voted against the 2002. So, Mr. Bellinger, I want you to change roles for one moment. Rather than working for the president, you're working for this committee, the 2001. What could you have suggested to us to put in the 2001 authorization, right after the attack of our country, to have prevented this interpretation, which I believe almost everyone agrees is not what Congress intended when it passed the authorization in 2001. You're now representing the legislative branch of government. What could you have put in the 2001 authorization other than a sunset that could have prevented this from this interpretation? Uh, so I appreciate the question, and actually I was privileged for a year to uh, serve as counsel of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and I always, when I speak at law schools, remind students that we have several branches of government, it's important to serve uh, on your side as well, so I appreciate the question. Uh, it, it could have been a much more restrictive AUMF. Uh, uh, it could have said, which is really what is being proposed today, uh, that this authority Do you, against you really think we understood that? In 2001, I mean, you can't use hindsight. You've got to use where you were in 2001. Do you well, really th think that we thought there would be an ISIS 17 years later, and that we wanted to prevent an ISIS I, uh, authorization? I, I think clearly, I, as I have said for several years, I do think successive presidents have stretched 
the 2001 AUMF. The biggest stretch of all was the uh, expansion to ISIS, which had been essentially divorced by al-Qaeda, uh, and uh, Congress has acquiesced in that. So you know, I think the nub of this issue, as we really all know, is are we better off under the 2001 AUMF and just continuing to muddle through, or do we uh, come up with a new one uh, where we have, a, have to have a reasonable compromise and not everybody is happy? And I'm for that, but how do you protect 18 years later, my successor in office, looking at what I did here in 2018 on how it's used by successive precedents, other than a sunset, how do you prevent something like this happening again by language we put in here? Because the language that's here, circumstances will allow future presidents to interpret mm -hmm. it to meet the needs that are there. How do you do that? So well, I, you back I, I hear you. I, it was certainly a sunset was one way to do it, but I have to agree with Senator Corker that the uh, a, a, a sunset is not going to win the support of the executive branch. Or I don't do the politics, but the uh, but, but the I'll the, tell you this: if there was a sunset put in in 2001, where the president needed authorization for force, then the president would be coming here today to seek the authorization we need and working with the Congress and getting that type of, of, of approval and consensus in this country that our founding fathers envisioned on the use of force. Again, I understand the point. I think the quadrennial review with the expedited procedures is a reasonable compromise and an advantage to what we have now, which is to simply let the president continue to expand the 2001 AUMF, uh, and he's going to do it any, successive presidents are going to do that anyway. So is this as restrictive as one would like? No. My, my but does it have restrictions in it that are helpful? I think it does. So my final point is this. You are bringing out a pragmatic problem with a president who has this blank check through interpretations of previous administrations and unwilling to take any restrictions because he already has this, versus those of us who are outraged with the interpretation over the last 17 years and are not anxious to codify or legalize what has been done by previous administrations that we disagree with. It seems to me we're at loggerheads here. And unless there's a give and take by the administration and Congress, we're not doing this nation any favor on what Congress and the President need to do together. I don't know any other way than a sunset in order to preserve the rights of our constitutional protections. And I welcome your thoughts on that. If there's other ways than a sunset, let me know about it. I can't think of any other way. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before turning to Senator Portman, using, again, a portion of my time, uh, Ms. Simeon, the, you referenced the eight groups that, uh, that this authorization, uh, that we're already fighting against today and that this authorizes a war against. Is it your sense, uh, just following up on Senator Cardin's comments, that the American people are outraged by us fighting ISIS or us fighting any of these groups that have been named the Taliban or any other groups? Or is the, I, I don't sense the American people are outraged, outraged at all relative to our war against these groups that are terrorists that wish us harm. Mr. Chairman, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I do. I wasn't conferring about the American people. I'm outraged by the interpretation, not by our, our campaign against ISIS. I support our campaign against ISIS. Well, and, and that's my point. I think actually everybody at this dais 
supports our campaign. And so we might not like the interpretation of former presidents and current presidents, but the fact is we, we actually do appreciate the effort that is underway. So it's, it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? So, I, it is. That's why I so, said. So I think us weighing in that we authorize force against these eight groups that were listed uh, is actually uh, uh, a good thing for I, our country. I, I agree with you. I was just referring to Mr. Yeah. Bellinger saying we have to yield to the president because he won't accept a sunset where he created, where the presidencies created the problem that we're dealing with today. It wasn't the Congress that created the problems. We did a well-intended authorization for use of military force in 2001. It's been three administrations that have misinterpreted and took the easy road rather than coming to Congress and working with us to get the authorization we needed to combat terrorism. I think to, to answer your question, Chairman, and I think also to answer the question that Senator Cardin has raised, uh, if Congress believes that the use of military force is currently necessary, not just other counterterrorism tools, of which there are many at the disposal of the executive branch, but the actual use of military force is necessary against these groups, then Congress can authorize that, right? And, and we as are. the representative of the people as, would do that. The problem is doing. that this authorization goes far beyond that and allows the president to add additional groups that members of this committee don't know if they would support or if the American people uh, would support those extensions. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I appreciate the witness has given us some more input on this. We've had other hearings. We've also had some closed-door sessions on this topic. And one thing that I must say confuses me a little bit is why someone would be happy to retain the status quo uh, that has not only no sunset, but no quadrennial review. <laughs> Uh, in, instead of moving forward with something that is admittedly uh, a compromise between members of this committee who have very different views, but does provide a requirement that the President of the United States send up to Congress a proposal every four years to either renew the existing authority or to modify that authority or to repeal that authority, which kicks off a process that Congress can begin to take. Look, I don't think a new AUMF is needed to deal with ISIS and associated forces. I, I think, you know, you're right about that. Uh, and I think others in this committee would, would agree with that for the most part. But what we're trying to do is to deal with the fact that this has been 17 years and it needs to be modified. And one of the major modifications is to put us on the spot, frankly, every four years to have to deal with this issue. And, and I commend uh, what Senator Flake, Senator Kane, Senator Coons, uh, Senator Young, Senator Nelson, and others have done in a bipartisan way to come up with this formula. Uh, and I, I'm just kind of confused why someone would want to live with the existing AUMF, which is in place, rather than having that improvement. Um, so I guess my first question would be uh, to you, Mr. Bellinger. Do you think the current AUMF text is better than the proposal by Senators Flake and Kane uh, in that regard? I think we lawyers call that a leading question, but uh, I, you just said it better than I said it. I was going to make. A, I'm, this. A, I'm a recovering lawyer. But I learned <laughs> early on only ask a question. Uh, the uh, uh, no, you did just say it better than I was going to make this point. Is you know, of course, all of these concerns that that uh, Senator Menendez and Senator Cardin. I, I mean, I understand these concerns, but this is an issue. Is from your point of view, is is the perfect better than the good? Uh, and 
you know, I just don't think that the, the executive branch and much of Congress does not seem to be prepared to support either uh, a sunset or a requirement for a new authorization every time a country or a group is added. I just don't see that happening. You'll be passing AUMFs every, uh, you know, few months. Well, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt you for a moment. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think Congress would be passing a new AUMF periodically. No. I agree with you. So I think Congress would sit on it, and I think some members of this Senate would choose to filibuster it, and I think that we would not be providing the ability for our armed forces to be able to protect us from a very real terrorist threat that's out there. That's the point. I mean, if you had a sunset, and assuming I, I understand your, your point of view on this, and, and I, I've been on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue, and I was in the council's office at the White House many, many years ago, but my gosh, you guys, if, if we're talking about a sunset, I mean, we, we can't seem to pass health care around here. We can't seem to pass some of the basic stuff uh, that you would think might be easier than this. So I don't agree with you that Congress would periodically be passing AUMFs. I mean, I think the danger is if the alternative is nothing, then you have no congressional accountability, frankly, because you don't have the quadrennial review. You don't have this requirement that Congress take it up every four years. Um, if the alternative is a sunset, then my fear is that we're in a very dangerous situation where you could have this authority lapse. And I think it's not unlikely that it would lapse. I think it's more likely that it would than it wouldn't. And the good thing about the quadrennial review is that it requires that the existing AUMF stay in place until there's a new AUMF. Uh, I agree, and, it, and it's not just that. To answer your question precisely, I do think this is an improvement. It may not improve as much as some would like, but it does have the quadrennial review, and it also requires the review every time a new group is added uh, or a new country is added. That expedited procedure, so if, if Congress is concerned about the addition of a new, that's not happening now. Right, and I think that is a, a big change, and Senator Kane, I'm sure, is going to talk about this and why he feels strongly about this, but that's been one of his points, is to say, you know, this gives the executive too much authority to be able to name a group that may or may not fit under what Congress's intent was. Well, look, I, I appreciate, again, both of your testimony, and, and I appreciate the fact that the chairman has agreed to have another hearing on this, because there are obviously a lot of issues that we disagree with. But, but I hope at the end of the day, uh, with Senator Menendez's background in this, Senator Cardin's background in this, and, and others on the other side who are very knowledgeable about it, Senator Paul has strong views on this, we can figure out a way to find a compromise. Otherwise, we're, we're right where we are now. And, and our ability to respond to the ongoing threat uh, it w will not be uh, as effective, and Congress will not have the authority or the accountability that I think we should have on us every four years to figure this out. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah. If, if I could, I still have a few seconds. Um, look, this is not the kind of AUMF I would write on my own accord. This is certainly not your father's AUMF, which just says we declare war against Japan or we declare war against a country, and it's whatever. This is very different from that. This is, in fact, a compromise. Our staff just did calculations in the back. We would have had to vote 13 times, 13 times since the 01 AUMF to get where we are today with the associated forces uh, that have been added over time, 13 times. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. Mr. Bellinger, do you agree? You've been very clear about your support for this um, proposed legislation. Do you share the concern that Ms. Simeon set out that what it does, however, is flip 
the process by which um, the president, rather than Congress, would have the authority to declare war? No, absolutely not. I mean, one, uh, several points. Congress for decades has given the president's broad authority to use force without a declaration of war uh, in general in all sorts of countries, uh, Panama, various other places. Uh, For the last 17 years, Congress has allowed three presidents to uh, add groups, add countries. So nothing's being flipped here. Uh, Congress has generally uh, allowed successive presidents, whether it's against terrorists or in other countries, broad, broad authority. So that is not flipping uh, uh, the order here. Uh, And that's because war powers, as both of us do agree on this, are shared. Congress has the power to declare war, but uh, under the Constitution, the president has very broad authority as commander in chief. So uh, he can go into new countries or against new groups, uh, uh, either on his own constitutionally, or I think quite legitimately Uh, under the statutory authorization given to him. So one of the concerns about the language that has been expressed is the associated forces, and does that give the president broad authority to expand where we might be engaging? What's the process by which the executive branch should designate a group as an associate force under this, and and how how much... um, security does that provide in terms of the ability to question whether that's an appropriate extension or not? I think this should, I think this is one of the advantages of the, this revised AUMF. Right now, the 2001 AUMF doesn't say anything about associated forces, so three presidents have just been uh, adding uh, uh, groups. I have been the lawyer in the room where we debate whether a group can be added and, you know, is it affiliated, is it associated, are they talking to each other? ISIS was the biggest stretch ever. It really is hard to say that ISIS was associated with al-Qaeda. The Obama administration came up, and this is not a political comment, it's just who was doing it, that they shared the DNA uh, of al-Qaeda. The advantage of this AUMF is it has a statutory definition of who can be added. They have to be fighting alongside or a co-belligerent with the groups that are named. Uh, The executive branch has to fit that statutory definition to fall within the AUMF, and then they have to report it to you in Congress, and then if you don't like that, there are then expedited procedures for you to reject that. So does it go as far as one might like to have a new authorization for every group? No, it doesn't, but then you have the problems the chairman mentioned is you'd have to have a new authorization every time. So I think that restriction in the definition is an advantage from the congressional perspective. Ms. Simeon, Given that almost all of the litigation around the AUMF authorities has been around the issue of detaining enemy combatants, how do you see this um, proposed language and this proposed AUMF affecting that issue of detention? Do you think it makes it more problematic? Well, so the, the authorization specifically amends the detention provision uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act um, 
to be in line with the new uh, groups that have been added and so uh, would put detention authority um, on stronger legal footing to be sure. It's up to uh, you know members uh, of Congress to decide whether um, such expansive detention authority is actually appropriate and warranted, and that really depends on whether uh, military force, right? You, I think it's really important to remember that uh, armed conflict, rules of war, were designed for a combat situation. And as such, um, there are very limited procedural protections. It's a very expansive and exceptional set of authorities. There are many, many counterterrorism uh, authorities that are out there. Our federal courts have proven extremely effective in uh, being able to prosecute um, and uh, convict those that are suspected of terrorism far more uh, than the detention scheme that we've seen over the last 16 uh, plus years. I agree, and so I'm going to interrupt you because I have another not directly related question. Um, I'm sure you all saw that um, two of the people who have been captured in Syria have been um, suspected of being involved in the murder of a number of Americans, the part of the Beatles group. One of those Americans was a constituent of mine, James Foley. Um, do you think that these two individuals are liable under US law for prosecution? So I haven't seen the evidence um, against these particular individuals. Uh, my understanding is that um, the executive branch has been working with uh, partner nations to assess that evidence and make a determination so whether or not there is a case for prosecuting these individuals. Um, there are currently very expansive uh, statutory provisions on the books right now uh, for prosecuting individuals who give their support to terrorism. So I think there is a, a very strong likelihood um, that they could make a case against such individuals. Mr. Bellinger. I also haven't seen the evidence, but assuming that they were responsible uh, for deaths of Americans or for material support, we have very clear uh, criminal laws. I, and I differ with some Republicans on this, I would rather see them tried in a criminal court. I actually think that military commissions have not proved successful. I think they had a purpose for certain cases when we did not have criminal laws that covered those people. But, you know, 17 years later, and we've not had a lot of success with military commissions. If the evidence is there, you know, and they have violated criminal laws, I suspect they would be in and out of a federal court pretty quickly. So I would... Assuming the evidence is there, I would rather than go the ideological perspective of trying to try them before a military commission and potentially lose, uh, I would rather put them in a federal criminal court and have that over and done with pretty quickly. That's, uh, I know not everybody agrees with that. Thank you. That's the request of the families. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Paul. You know, I think when we approach this issue, the big picture uh, question for me is, uh, will this authorization allow us to be at war in more places or less places? Is it expanding the scope of the war or contracting the scope of the war? It's obviously our duty to do it, so we should be doing it. So I commend the authors for trying to do what we're supposed to do anyway, which is decide when we go to war, when war is initiated. But then the second question, which is equally important, is are we expanding the war or contracting the war? And people say, well, the status quo is the president does whatever he wants. Yes, that's a status quo, and it's wrong. And those of us who complain about it say he was never authorized to go to war in these places. He was never authorized to attack associated forces. And people say, well, he does anyway, so we need to codify it. But once you codify it, we've lost the one argument we have is that they're, they're acting inappropriately and illegally. So we could legalize what they're doing. We can legalize the status quo. But I think we also expand the war. 
Now, the chairman has said that we're authorizing war. We're not giving that up. Sure, we're authorizing war on certain entities, but we're also then saying the president can determine associated entities. Actually, if you look at the test, the, the text of the AUMF, it says the initial list is coming from him. We give him some sort of suggestions, but he's going to come back to us and tell us where he thinks we're at war and where we should be at war. He's giving us the initial list. It's going to come from him. We could only object to that with a two-thirds vote. So yes, we are initially authorizing this by a majority vote, but really the, we're authorizing him to come up with a list, not just the Associated Forces list, the whole list. The initial list is coming from the president. The only way we can stop him, or the only way we can say we're not at war in any of those countries that come back on the initial list, is to have a two-thirds vote. So we have completely flipped the Constitution on its head. The Constitution says the role is ours by simple majority vote. Now we're saying the role we're going to delegate and give to the president, and we can only disapprove it by a two-thirds vote. I cannot more strongly object to doing this. This, is a, this will be an unconstitutional delegation of authority to the president, without question. You can say we authorized war. Yes, we're authorizing war against certain groups. But that's where the problem begins. You're authorizing war against groups that have an ideology in common. So we're really authorizing war against ideology. And we're never going to win a war against an ideology, and this ideology is everywhere. And people say, well, there would have been 13 times that we had to vote. Well, yeah, that's our duty. That's why they gave it to Congress. They didn't want it to be easy to go to war. It's supposed to be hard to go to war. And people say, we'll never go to war. Woe is me. We won't be at war. When we have been attacked on, on December 7th, on December 8th, they came to, to, to vote for war after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The vote was nearly unanimous. After 9-11, they came to Congress, and the vote was nearly unanimous. We did a vote that was more mixed on Iraq, and it was a mistake, and I think the vote displayed that. But the thing is, yes, we should be forced to vote. I don't care if we had to vote 100 times. We're voting on war. It's our responsibility, not the president's. This AUMF, while well-intended, transfers that authority to the president. In a hugely open-ended fashion, it is a huge mistake. When we look at this and we say, what are the associated forces? The definition, we define it, but we leave it up to the president. The president's going to decide, and we can only disapprove of this. So I can't more strongly object to this. And uh, I don't have a question, because I think we've, we've addressed these issues yeah. pretty well. But the thing is, is I do believe that this flips the Constitution on its head, and I do believe that it expands the scope of war. And you have to ask yourself, do we need to be at war in more places or less? Um, you know, we have 6,000 troops and we only got, in Africa, and we only got that out of the administration by, by badgering them because we're at war and nobody even knows it. Nobody knows we're in Mali. I still don't know why we're chasing a herdsman in Mali and why we lost four of our soldiers there. And so this will expand that. You know, conservatively at six countries, it's really probably above 20 countries. Uh, Islam and the Maghreb could be eight countries itself. You know, so we really are expanding this. And the thing is, people say, well, it's just a status quo. Well, at least the status quo, we can argue, is illegal now, that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. Once this is passed, there is no legal argument for ever arguing against the president's expansion of the war. The war will go on forever in, in so many places you cannot enumerate. And so while well-intended, I think this is a really bad idea, and I hope we uh, vote this down. Thank you. Senator Mr. Bellinger. 
actually, if I could just respond to a couple points. Several senators have raised this question of non-delegation and the constitutionality. That principle says that under the Constitution, Congress can't just delegate a authority assigned to it under Article One. So you can't just say, you know, we're tired of it doing appropriations, so we're going to let the, the executive do appropriations. They can't do that. But it, it's different in, under, in war powers. Uh, and the Supreme Court has very clearly said that, that the non-delegation prohibition does not apply uh, with equal force in war powers because war powers are not an exclusive authority of Congress. So if Congress allows the president to exercise certain war powers, like deciding who's an associated force or what country to move into, it's because those powers are actually shared. So uh, it's not an unconstitutional delegation. Mr. Si Ms. Simeon, your opinion? So I, I think this is exactly what it would be, which would be delegating an explicit authority in the Constitution that is assigned to Congress. There are uh, war powers that are shared. Um, so for instance, a decision about how much force to authorize is something where Congress could leave room and discretion. They could authorize a limited amount of force or they could not place limitations on that and leave it up to the president to decide how many troops and how much force is necessary. Um, this is very different. This is an explicit um, authority of Congress to decide who to go to war with and where. And I, I think that that is not a power that can or should be delegated to the president. Just to, I don't think I was particularly clear earlier. If this AUMF, just to respond to, respond to Senator Paul, if this had been in place in 2001, this AUMF, we would have had 13 votes. We would have had 13 votes. We've had none. Uh, because we would have had four, four reviews, we would have had four countries added, there would have been five groups, and so there would have been 13 votes by Congress since that time if this particular AUMF was in place. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think that might make uh, part of our point, which is that Congress has the ability uh, to have these debates. And so if this would have commanded that Congress have 13 debates, then we could have had them uh, had we read the 2001 AUMF differently. Frankly, many of us believe that associated forces, that definition is a fiction that was layered on top of the underlying statute. Many of us would argue that we were legally required to have 13 different debates and we simply didn't do it. Um, I think it's well within our ability uh, to have on average one debate about the authorization of military force a year. We spend hundreds of hours on uh, other constitutional duties like confirming judges and appointees of the president. We pass a $500 billion defense appropriations uh, and authorization bill each year. We certainly have the ability to, to do this. Um, and my worry is, is that we are largely taking ourselves out of this question or setting up such a high bar that it is totally unrealistic uh, to meaningfully engage. Um, Ms. Simeon, I wanted to uh, have you talk a little bit more about uh, your worries regarding the definition of associated forces, because this is a very complicated definition under the draft that we are looking at. Um, it's complicated because it is not simply about an, a group that is directly associated with one of the named organizations. The definition also allows 
for an associated force to have a relationship with an associated force. So you can be part of an associated force uh, and come under this definition further. Uh, the definition of associated force allows for the administration to show that the um, hostilities are against coalition partners, not against the United States. And so if you follow the tree of where that could go, you can very easily have associated forces that are named that present no threat to the United States and frankly have no tangible connection to ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda, or any of the named groups here because you can have a never-ending series of affiliations with prior associated forces. This seems to me to be the most problematic part of this draft, um, the overbroad nature um, and the ability to continue to, um, uh, to build out the groups that are named, even though they may present no immediate threat to the United States. Well, I, I thank you um, for that question. Um, as you mentioned, this uh, idea of associated forces is something that originated with the executive branch um, and something that they layered on to the authorization in 2001 that Congress did not include. So I, I think that that's where this would be very, very different from the status quo under that AUMF. Congress would actually be affirmatively providing the authority to the executive branch, not just the executive branch claiming the authority, but Congress would actually be giving the executive branch that authority to add associated forces. And um, as legal scholars uh, who have noted and discussed in detail, this very concept of associated forces, it came from this concept of co-belligerency uh, under international law, and it rests on a very shaky uh, legal grounds. And even within the executive branch, there's not a shared understanding or agreement on um, what exactly sort of falls uh, within that. I think that uh, it is, there's every reason to be concerned, especially based on the past 17 years, that even with a, a definition in the statute, which largely tracks the definition that the administration um, says it's using, um, that the president would not be cabined in how far he could or would potentially stretch who this applies to. Um, and in part, as you said, because the definition sort of allows for this sort of uh, constant daisy chaining and fracturing of groups, um, not just that are uh, alleged to be associated currently, but even those that were part of and then split off and are now even fighting against um, other groups. Um, uh, thank you for, for that. I share those concerns. I just want to sneak in one additional question to you, Mr. Uh, Bellinger, and, and that's on this uh, carve out in the bill for um, sovereign governments. Um, and so let me pose the question to you this way. Do you believe that the president had the authority uh, to conduct uh, strikes against the Syrian regime, uh, as happened twice in the last two years? Um, and do you believe that this uh, authorization of military force would constrain the president's, would have, if, if it had been in effect, would it have constrained the president's ability to launch those strikes? Uh, Thanks, Senator Murphy. And I remember you and I had an exchange on this at the time, I think, in June, because I frankly was skeptical that when the administration was saying that they thought that using force against the Syrian forces was actually authorized by you in Congress, because they clearly were not a, an organization, person, or nation that had committed the 9-11 attacks. It seemed to be sort of derivative uh, that because the Syrians were somehow impeding the administration's ability to go after the groups, that there was sort of derivative authority. Um, I frankly don't fully understand that rationale then, and I don't understand it now. Um, I, I do think 
that the, uh, the, the, the Cain-Corker bill clearly does not authorize a nation state to be designated as an associated force. Does that literally prevent a executive branch from engaging in the same interpretation that they made already? Probably not. But just remind me, did you think they had Article II authority, general yes. authority to- Yes, to, to would I have done right? that? You know, I don't know. But uh, I think I did say to you that they, you know, the president does have broad authority under Article II. So if he felt that it was a national security threat, then I, I, I was surprised they just didn't rely under their Article II authority rather than say they thought this was authorized by Congress 17 years ago. I just think that that remains one of our worries, that if there is still this broad claim of Article II authority to go after nation states, regardless of authorization, um, then the restriction in this bill is a little bit less meaningful. But I appreciate your answer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for convening this hearing, and thank you to the witnesses. I know Mr. Bellinger has been before this committee a lot uh, on this subject, and uh, appreciate your time. Ms. Simeon, your, your points as well. Um, I'm, when we talk about uh, what is optimal, I think we also have to consider what is reality. And the reality is, is not one member of this committee was in the Senate uh, when the original AUMF that we're still operating under was passed. A few of us were in the House during that time, but not one member of this committee was in the Senate to consider the original AUMF. We have not weighed in in a meaningful way in that long, and that's the reality. And uh, so, what we have to to judge, uh, you know, this this product against the reality, and not what is optimal. I, for example, uh, would love a firm sunset. I think that that's optimal. I think that that's the best to to force us to revisit it, um, and not have, as Senator Paul has correctly uh, said, as as a, something where we've kind of flipped it authority on its head and we're voting to disapprove rather than voting affirmatively to approve, I think that would be optimal. But I'm also sensitive to the fact that this is a bipartisan institution. <laughs> the Senate requires 60 votes and you take what you can get sometimes and if we can pull back uh, some of that authority that we should have more jealously guarded over the past 17 years, I think that would be a good thing. And my view is uh, this legislation that the chairman has worked so hard on and Senator Kane and others on the committee uh, to bring to this point does that. It does claw back some of that authority and gives us a more meaningful role. Uh, Ms. Simeon, you mentioned that uh, uh, in place of uh, passing something like this that we should use existing authorities that we have or other avenues to rein in uh, the president or the administration uh, can you explain w w what we've done over the past 17 years to do that, this this body or the House or the Congress in general? So I, I think that there are, are many options that are available um, to this committee uh, right now to take steps to uh, rightly reassert Congress's role. Uh, one would be to pass something like the quadrennial review on its own without a broad uh, new delegation of authority to the executive branch. Uh, the executive branch currently asserts that it has all of the authority that it needs. It's not seeking new and fresh authority. Um, so I don't see a reason for Congress to be providing 
additional authorities and delegating its power on top of that um, in exchange for an expedited procedure or a quadrennial review when it can pass um, expedited procedures now, it can pass a quadrennial review now. And, and also, I think one of the, the benefits that uh, many folks have, have touted with this proposal is asserting that it would um, increase transparency or reporting to Congress. And I want to be sort of crystal clear um, that that's actually not the case. Um, under current law right now in the National Defense Authorization Act, the President is required to report to Congress on any changes in the legal interpretation under the 2001 AUMF. They're required to do that within 30 days of any such change. And that includes if, they, if the President were to expand to new groups or to new countries. Um, that reporting must be provided in unclassified form and can you know, include additional information in a classified Annex. So the, the, the one single sort of reporting in this uh, legislation that would require the president to tell Congress if he added new groups or new countries, that's actually already required um, within 30 days under current law. Um, if, if Congress wanted to actually pass more robust uh, reporting or public transparency requirements, um, it can do so through the National Defense Authorization Act. It can do, throw, uh, do so through appropriations, et cetera. But to the question, I, I know that there are uh, options available to Congress. Has Congress taken uh, or availed itself of any of those opportunities over the past 17 years? Well, it, so I think that's exactly the problem, right? So because the 2001 authorization did not have an expiration date um, and did not actually name the specific enemies that force could be used against, that has allowed for the executive branch right. to stretch it and interpret it broadly, which has put Congress in a very difficult position right. for reasserting its powers. And the concern with this proposal is that it would take those problems and cement and entrench them for years to come. I, I see that differently. Um, I think those of us who've worked on this see that differently. Um, I, I, I take your point, and uh, that's why we are engaged in this. We haven't availed of ourselves of this opportunity because the 2001 is so broad. Um, we're trying to narrow it down and trying to give uh, Congress more of a role, recognizing that we need 60 votes to pass something. And uh, it's, it's fine and nice to talk about what's optimal and what we should have, but we deal here in what we can pass. And, and that's why I commend the chairman and others for putting something together that we think that we can pass and that I believe will give Congress, will claw back some of the authority that rightly belongs with this institution. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for calling this hearing. Thanks for the witnesses. Um, I think it's long past time for Congress to revise the open-ended grant of authority that the 2001 AUMF uh, has been used by three administrations to conduct this war. And I have been motivated by this from the very beginning. I, I think Congress needs to send a message to our troops, and one of them is one of my kids, that the missions that they're fighting and dying for against non-state terrorist groups have the support of Congress. Um, and we have been repeatedly asked for that by secretaries of state and defense of both parties that it would be a good thing to do this. And, um, and I've heard my committee colleagues over the years say, we need to do this, we need to re-up it. But I've also heard often, but of course I couldn't vote for that. Whatever that that is that's on the table is never enough. And I think it's hard because we're dealing with non-state groups that change their name, splinter, et cetera. There's an intellectual difficulty to the problem. But my hope for the committee is if we do believe that the military actions we're engaged in against non-state terrorist groups are things we need to be engaged in. And if we do believe 
that the 2001 authorization has run its course and ought to be replaced, then we will earnestly do what this committee has often done and find common cause. And so I appreciate the hearings and I hope we'll have a robust uh, second hearing with uh, Secretary Pompeo and a, a good process. Just for both witnesses, I wanna just start with this first question. Do, do you each support the continuing need for U.S. military action against ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban? Certainly as a policy matter, yes. Uh, and I would rather see Congress authorize it. Uh, you know, again, you've heard me say before, I'm an executive branch lawyer, but I would rather, we would always rather have yeah. Congress authorizing it than just, just- Just separate from the authorization yeah. question. As a policy yes. matter, yes. And Ms. Simeon. So I, I think that the use of military force um, is something that the president should be coming to Congress and- Well, can, can I just say, we are currently engaged in military action against ISIS, the Taliban, and Al-Qaeda. Do you support the need for that action or don't you? All right, so I think that hard questions need to be asked of the administration about what are we achieving by using military force so you're, over you're, the long term? So you're not prepared to say today whether you do or do not support the actions that our troops are currently engaged in against ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban? I think that there are currently um, real questions that need to be answered let, let me about ask, the uh, efficacy let, of using force. Let me ask a second question then. Um, do you, I, I think from your testimony, you both would agree, separating this resolution, that the 2001 authorization should be rewritten or replaced. Do I understand your testimony correctly? Yes. I agree that the status quo is incredibly problematic. Now, so let me then, I'll be more specific. Do you think it should be repealed with no replacement or rewritten and replaced? No, I, I think that if um, Congress agrees that using military force um, is required and is appropriate and it's demonstrated that it can be effective for addressing particular terrorist threats, then Congress should authorize the use of military force against okay. those particular I, groups. I understand that. Um, I, obviously, if somebody does not think we should be using military force against ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or the Taliban, then they should vote no on this. They should not vote for an authorization. Um, that's a good reason to vote no if you do not support the military action that our troops are currently engaged in against these groups. This resolution repeals the 2001 and 2002 in AUMF. It requires an affirmative vote of Congress, doesn't flip the presumption, an affirmative vote to authorize continuing military action against Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and, and the Islamic State, along with designated associate forces that meet a two-pronged definition. They've got to be connected to the original three, and they have to be engaged in battlefield hostilities against the United States or our battlefield partners. Um, no sovereign nation can be an associated force. Associated force and coalition partners are both specifically described in this, which they weren't in the 2001 authorization. In order to recognize the fact that terrorist groups splinter and change their names and also don't respect geographic boundaries, the authorization allows the president to direct the, de the declared war that Congress has affirmatively authorized in new places and against new groups, but with a decision point for Congress. You're right, Ms. Simeon, that it doesn't increase transparency because the president currently has to file reports, but the reports just gather dust. They're not decision points. The expedited process in this bill would put the filing of every report would make it a decision point for Congress. And we, we've kind of gone back and forth, how many decision points would there have been? But since 2001, we've 
the president has noticed an, an additional 11 associated forces in 14 different countries. That's 25 That's decision 25, points. Yeah. Um, and there would have been four quadrennial reviews, which would be another four. So we would have had nearly 30 decision points. What would Congress have decided? I can't guarantee that. But compared to the only real vote I can remember having was Senator Paul's um, floor amendment on the NDA last year in 17 years. I think this is an improvement, but I'm also sure that if we if we earnestly engage as colleagues together to act in accord with what we've said, that we do need to be engaged in this mission and that we do need to rewrite the 2001 authorization, I think we can find a consensus to get there to do it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you to the witnesses. Thank, thank you. Senator Markley. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the work of my colleagues, uh, certainly you, Mr. Chairman, and my colleague, Senator Kane, for working so hard to try to figure out how to, how to replace the 2001 AUMF. I do have uh, fundamental concerns about it. And Mr. Uh, Bellinger, the War Powers Act says that the President can act on the basis of one of three principles, declaration of war, congressional specific congressional authorization, or three, an emergency response to an attack on our assets, our, our personnel, or our homeland, more or less. Uh, do you believe the Article II powers of the President exceed that? I do. I think that part is, the War Powers Act is clearly unconstitutional. I think most people agree that that part is clearly unconstitutional. Thank you. And you have noted, if I understood you correctly, that uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis said that a new UAMF would be useful by clarifying the legal foundation for military action currently occurring. Did I understand you correctly? Did I, did, did Secretary Mattis say that? Uh, I understood you to say that. That, that, that was my understanding. I don't want to put words yes. in his mouth, but I, yes. I think Senator Kane and I have heard the same thing. That, okay, that, that okay. He, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Corker noted that it takes a supermajority today to restrict the decision of a president to expand military activities. Uh, Ranking Member Menendez noted that the proposed AUMF requires a supermajority to restrict the president. You noted that one can view this as codifying the power of the president as exercised since 2001. Do I have that basically correct that you view this as codifying, or one can view this as codifying the power of the president as exercised since 2001? It is codifying the use force against <clears throat> the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the groups that are in that. Uh, yes, I think it is codifying that. But also, you talked about how that had been stretched, 2001 had been stretched, and that this creates a process through which the president is given legal authority to, uh, to create new groups. And in that case, it's a parallel to where we are at now, except it gives more legal foundation for that activity. So I'm glad, because that, I think, is the, the really is the key point here. Uh, and I, I actually would like to focus on this, because I, I cannot believe that short, Congress- Short version. Short thought that no associated group over the last 17 years should have been added. You know, AQAP, was Congress really suggesting that that's illegal? Uh, so it, it clearly does seem to me that Congress intended to allow the president to add some groups, because as Secretary Mattis said, these groups change their names and countries okay. as quickly as we change I'll, hats. I'll, I'll just take that as an interpretation, though. Many of the people who are here said that they were very impressed by how very specific that was. Now, under this all necessary and appropriate force clause, who interprets what is necessary and appropriate? Is that the Commander-in-Chief? Yes, although consistent certainly with international law. Thank, thank you. 
And uh, when the president decides to go to additional groups, and the language says it has to be a group fighting alongside or a cold belligerent, who interprets that? That would be the executive, although you've given a clear statutory definition, and then it would also be consistent I'm just asking who interprets that definition. Those the, words. The executive, be the, be the executive branch initially, because you've Thank given you. a statutory definition, then it comes back so to Congress. When we look at the history of how the executive branch stretched the definition of 2001, which was much more specific in terms of those who attacked us on 9-11 or those who aided and abetted that attack, what is to make us think that this broader language of fighting alongside or co-belligerent isn't even a much easier thing to stretch to any conceivable situation? because you now have a statutory definition that's really quite specific, that it has to be fighting alongside of and a co-belligerent with, and you've set that in statute, and you're now saying that the president can okay. only grant Let me just that, Let me that just that say definition. that tons of documents by lawyers examine words like that and find every possible way to construe what it means to fight alongside. And I just, um, Ms. Seaman, would you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's exactly right. Um, we've seen a lot of very creative lawyering under successive administrations um, in order to expand the very narrow authorization in the 2001 AUMF. As you mentioned, this is a much, much, much broader authorization, and I think um, that Congress needs to be aware of just how much stretching far beyond Congress's current intent uh, as to where force is currently necessary um, that the president would be able to stretch this authorization. And so if a, a president says, I want to go into Yemen uh, and uh, use some bombing strikes on terrorist training centers, and uh, 60 days pass, uh, and now we're outside of the period and for the expedited procedures, and the president says, I want to go into all-out war, would there be any expedited procedures left for Congress to consider that big change and shift under the proposed AUMF? No. Uh, my time is, is out, so I'll just conclude by saying I think this is a really important discussion that I know the committee has wrestled with since long before I was uh, serving on it, and I think it's right that we wrestle with it. I think in the bottom line, what we have before us codifies the existing situation, gives fresh authority for what has been done since 2001, and um, I fundamentally believe that that delegation wasn't intended in 2001, and isn't appropriate now. That the Constitution, if you read the Federalist Papers on how they decided to give that war-making power to Congress, they said this should not be in the hands of a single person. It is too big of issue. The lives of our soldiers, our sons and daughters, is too big of an issue for one person to open that door. And I believe they were exactly right, that we have a constitutional responsibility to examine opening the door. It's assigned to us, and there's a fundamental reasoning behind it that I think still is legitimate today, a couple centuries later. And so I will be putting out an alternative, and, and Mr. Chairman, uh, you, you challenged us in that session we had. You said, all of you who thinks this goes too far, what would you do? You asked that, and I thought, you know, that's a really good fair question, and I wasn't here when this whole conversation started, so I've been wrestling with that. Uh, how would I attempt to give the flexibility to the president to address extreme challenges while making sure we are responsibly opening the door, not trying to close it after the fact? 
And so I will be putting forward an alternative that attempts to, to, uh, to be deeply rooted in our constitutional vision. Well, I appreciate you doing that. And, and uh, you know, I do hope um, that as we move through this, I, I, I feel like sometimes there are arguments made that are made to divide. And then I think there are arguments that are made to, to, you know, to try to get us to a, to a better place. And I really appreciate, again, all the work that Kane and Blake have done um, all these years. And I, I appreciate the, the attitude with which, with which you've come at this. And, and look, you know, we're not going to end up with something with 21 people thinking this is outstanding. I know. Senator Menendez, I know, attempted, uh, you know, in 2014 to do something that micromanaged a little bit more so than, than this does, and, and, uh, and I appreciate his efforts and his consistent point of view, but I do hope as we move along we can <laughs> achieve the goal of passing something out of the committee that uh, the, the majority in a bipartisan way support, and I think uh, both of our witnesses have been very helpful towards that end today. With that, Senator Menendez, I know. I think Senator Young is. Senator Young, I'm sorry. Well, I thank the chairman and ranking member. I thank you for convening this important hearing and for your longstanding leadership uh, to ensure that uh, this committee, this Congress, fulfills our uh, constitutional responsibilities. Um, we are the Article I branch, and, and despite your best efforts, uh, and they have been sincere and uh, extensive, as an institution, I, I believe uh, we just haven't been acting like we're the Article I branch when it comes to authorizing and overseeing the use of military force. I also want to specifically thank Senators Kane and, and Flake. I'd be remiss if I didn't. Uh, you both have worked in a principled and a persistent manner to make progress on a difficult issue. <laughs> Uh, a new authorization for the use of military force, um, and I really admire your leadership on this issue. I am relatively new to the U.S. Senate, and uh, since I've been here, I've tried to play a constructive and, where I can, catalytic role when it comes to a new AUMF, believing that's what the Constitution commands and what our troops deserve. On January 18 of last year, uh, it was my second hearing on this committee, uh, I pushed for a new AUMF. I served in the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, I know there, there are fathers and, and mothers of service members on this committee. And um, I know they can identify uh, with not wanting to uh, simply criticize our institution's inability to pass a new AUMF and then do nothing. So I put pen to paper. I drafted what I thought was an optimal AUMF introducing it in my first couple of months in the Senate. And since then, I've kept at it, trying to work in a bipartisan manner and make principled compromises where I have to to move things forward. Uh, I'm proud of the role I played in breaking a deadlock a few months ago and in shaping Senate Joint Resolution 59. And I'm excited we're at this point with serious bipartisan legislation uh, and candid uh, feedback uh, that uh, has a, and, and I really believe that we still have a chance of, of passing this new construct out of this committee. In, in the course of doing that, we're going to have to balance two important objectives. First, we have to fulfill these Article I constitutional responsibilities with respect to war powers. That requires congressional authorization and assertive oversight when it comes to 
who we're fighting and where we're fighting them. And second, we have to recognize the serious and continuing amorphous, mobile, and evolving nature of the Islamist terrorist threat and provide DOD the means to confront this unique threat uh, to effectively uh, fight, carry on this war. So terrorists cannot attack us here at home like they did on 9-11. Now, I know these two objectives are clearly in tension with one another from time to time, and that's why this isn't easy, but I believe that Senate Joint Resolution 59 is the best attempt yet uh, that could actually pass to balance these sometimes competing priorities. And so for that reason, I'm an original co-sponsor of this legislation. To my fellow Republicans, to fellow Hawks, I say that this provides an increasingly necessary legal update to enable DOD to take the fight to our enemies, to detain enemy combatants when we com capture them, and to keep Americans safe. Passing this legislation would also demonstrate our continued support for our troops and the continued determination of the American people to defeat Islamist terrorists. To those who believe that Congress has abdicated its role and war powers and worry about an unchecked executive, concerns I share, I say that an objective analysis of this legislation demonstrates that Senate Joint Resolution 59 is a dramatic improvement over the status quo. A dramatic improvement. So I, I look forward to continued discussion today and, and um, beyond, and I'm hopeful we'll mark this up, amend as necessary, and pass it out of committee without delay. Mr. Bellinger, many Americans don't follow these issues as closely as, as we do, certainly as you do. You mentioned uh, today that there are legal problems associated uh, in your analysis with detention authority under the current AUMF. You recently alluded, again here today, to uh, subsequent presidential stretching of legal authority since passage of the 2000 AUMF. As someone who has served as the top legal advisor in a Republican administration, can you briefly expand upon why you believe executive branch legal reliance on the 01 AUMF for continued military activities against Islamist terrorist groups is becoming, as you've put it, increasingly strained. I can and I, I will be brief and I will just thank you, Senator, again for your leadership. I know you have been interested in this from the very beginning. Uh, I, I thought your bill was very helpful uh, and I know you've worked with the others on this and particularly given your own military background, you know, I salute you for what you've done. Uh, detention, I spent way too much time on detention issues in my eight years. These are difficult, difficult issues. And frankly, 16 years ago, human rights groups were taking the position that the AUMF didn't allow for detention, that the authorization to use military force didn't authorize detention. You know, that was, the executive branch position was, well, of course, military force includes not only the authority to kill, but also to detain, and that's been upheld by the courts. But the problem is, is that when uh, a group like ISIS was added by uh, President Obama saying that that were the group that committed the 9-11 attacks, which is, I think we all know was a big stretch, uh, that's being litigated right now. And so an ISIS member is saying, wait a minute, I didn't commit the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and so the uh, 2001 AUMF doesn't apply to me. Now the executive may win that, um, and the president clearly has constitutional authority, but it is 
legally problematic and it's being challenged in the court. So would I, as an executive branch matter, prefer to have clear legal authority for detention of an ISIS member? Yes, I would. And I think that, that this, this bill does that. And in the absence of, of, of clear uh, legal authority uh, to detain enemy combatants, uh, does that in any way provide more of an incentive to seek other ways to eliminate the threat uh, of uh, enemy combatants uh, who are on the battlefield? That is, instead of detention, is one incentivized to eliminate uh, uh, an, an individual, uh, seek a sanitized uh, approach, uh, perhaps drone strikes? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I will say it was interesting to me that President Obama, obviously having watched the struggles of the Bush administration over detention in Guantanamo that I think, you know, everybody agrees, wherever you are in the political perspective, we're difficult and complicated, that mm -hmm. President Obama stopped detaining people and just started killing people through drone strikes. So, yeah, I... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for all your efforts on this, too. Thank you so much. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. There's a lot of comments that have been made. Let me far, first start off say that I really appreciate the discussion that has taken place here. Generally speaking, it has been incredibly thoughtful, uh, and it reflects the complexities of the issue as well as the very significant policy disagreements as to how you come about those issues. So I don't think anybody here uh, is... Uh, of a view that we shouldn't fight America's enemies. The question is under what way do we do that and under what authorities do we create? So I appreciate everybody coming to that, uh, this discussion in that view. I think it's also never very good to cast aspersions upon entities uh, because they have a different view. So yes, uh, to say that liberal groups uh, have a certain view, I could say that conservative groups, they have, some of them are war hawks. I don't say that, even though I think some of those war hawks are really chicken hawks, because they wouldn't uh, risk their sons and daughters in harm's way. Uh, some do, many won't. And so I, I, I never castigate any group because of their view and, and don't classify them in, in that respect. I do think that the question here uh, is that, yes, we will authorize uh, the war against these entities, but we're also going to authorize wars against unforeseen actors if we do this. And then our only way to escape that authorization is to deauthorize it with a simple majority. I just fundamentally believe that is different. That turns the Constitution on its head. Now, Mr. Bellinger, you said that Congress has allowed the president uh, to uh, do a series of things. That's true. Inaction. Inaction is the allowance. It's not, uh, it's not an action of overtly saying, here, you should do these things, or here, you should not do these things. It is inaction. So yes, if we had to take 13 votes over the course of 17 years, we have voted a dozen times to repeal the Affordable Care Act. If we could do that in less than 17 years, I don't care that we have 13 votes if that's what's necessary. We spent over a dozen times, maybe in the House, over 20 times to repeal the Affordable Care Act and far less time. So yeah, if we're going to send our sons and daughters into harm's way, by the way, billions of dollars, thousands of lives, I don't think that's too much to Congress to ask. Uh, I heard you say, Mr. Bellinger, that the administration would support an AUMF if it's an improvement 
And I'd love to hear what that means. What, what's an improvement from your perspective of the administration? Is, uh, this, is this, will they consider this an improvement? I can't speak for them on that. I mean, you will have to. But I, I, I think in general, detention authority, clear detention authority for ISIS members uh, would be an improvement. Uh, and generally, as Senator Kane and Senator Flake have said, uh, have the Congress on record supporting the war that our troops are currently fighting. You've heard that from Secretary Mattis. Those two things, legally and That's constitutionally, are improvement. That's not an improvement of an AUMF. That is support of the current engagement. I, I'm not sure that that's an improvement at the end of the day. Well, I think one's a technical legal improvement and one is constitutional support. I think well, that's I, an improvement. I look forward to asking the administration what they consider an improvement uh, uh, at the end of the day. Let me just say uh, to, my, to my friend, Senator Kane, um, and I have the deepest respect for his efforts and his, his mission here, um, but I uh, reject as a false choice that voting against this when it comes time for that, if this is what the final product is, is a vote against uh, the efforts of our troops in the field. No, that would suggest that this is the only choice. And in 2014, when I was the chairman, we passed a resolution which you supported at the time, an authorization for the use of military force that had a different way. Now, it didn't get uh, sufficient votes. It got votes to come out of the committee. It didn't get sufficient votes to move on the floor. But nonetheless, it was a different way. So when Senator Portman suggests that why would we support the status quo, um, we don't support the status quo. The question is what's the alternative to the status quo? And suggesting that it's either this or nothing is not in my mind the, the proposition that, that one has to accept. You know, um, I would just simply say that when uh, the, uh, to the question of, well, Congress won't act quickly enough, responsibly enough, if the case for the use of force in a new entity or a new country is so compelling, why can't an administration come and make the message to Congress and the American people the case? Congress has acted quickly in the past when it needs to, especially when it was asked for a, a UMF. And when it hasn't, as was the case in 2013 when President Obama requested congressional authorization for limited strikes in Syria against Assad who was using his chemical weapons, it's because there wasn't overwhelming support to do so. So although I supported the 2013 authorization for the use of force against Assad and the chemical weapons, a number of my colleagues on this committee on both sides of the aisle did not. Isn't that in essence an expression of the Congress as envisioned by the Constitution. So in that case, they didn't want to give the Commander-in-Chief an authorization. And their withdrawal or denial of giving him votes actually expressed the will of the Congress. So I think there's nothing wrong with, with that as a proposition. And so I deeply respect what people are trying to achieve. I reject the proposition that it's either this or you're not with our troops. That's ridiculous. Uh, and uh, I look forward to the administration's testimony and then to the markup so we can try to get to a point that we can uh, have the type of consensus or closer consensus that we need. And I appreciate uh, the opportunity, Mr. Chairman. I ask that Senators Booker and Markey would like to be recorded as no votes on the Fannin nomination at the business meeting. Without objection. Senator Kane. If I, if I might, to, to my friend, uh, Senator Menendez, I want to just clarify, and the transcript would show this, I think, 
Um, I certainly did not suggest that if you vote against an AUMF, you are voting against the troops who are currently fighting. I didn't suggest that. I did suggest if you are against military action, that is a good reason to oppose our proposal. There could be other reasons to oppose it. I was engaging in questions of, of the witness to see if she agreed we should be engaged in military action against these groups, and she would not offer an opinion upon that. But I just stated, there, there are people who believe, and I don't challenge their good faith, I disagree with them, but I don't challenge their good faith, that we should not be involved in military action against one or more of these groups. And that's a good reason to vote no. But I didn't say that that would be the only reason somebody might vote no. And, and I agree with you, I think this has been helpful in flushing out a lot of concerns that are very legitimate and that I hope the committee might be able to hash through and you know, find our way to something that can be bipartisan and acceptable, not unanimous certainly, but bipartisan and acceptable. So uh, with closing comments, I, first of all, I wanna say the effort in 2013 on Syria to me was uh, one of the highlights uh, here in the committee. I supported that also and, and uh, I, I've, that'd be an interesting short chapter book to write as to why we've never took it up and, uh, and what, what ended up happening, which really changed the course of history in Syria in so many ways, and in many ways, the, the Middle East at large. So I think that was a high point, and I enjoyed working with you on that, and I thought we came to a good conclusion in a, in a short amount of time on a, on, a, on a very serious topic. I know that there were questions raised about the administration's input. I, I do want to say that uh, I was part of a small group, I think Senator Kane may have been also, and others who met with the Obama administration uh, to to try to come up with, quote, what they deem to be a better authorization. So I, I don't view that as something other that this administration wanting to, to weigh in on a better, I mean, that's just what administrations do. They, they try to work with Congress to come up with something that they think is better. That's typically the way that these things work. And I wish that we had gone, actually we were on track in those days uh, under President Obama to come up with something not unlike the kind of thing we're talking about today. I no way want to say that it specifically uh, was this particular AUMF, but it was trying to take into account changes that take place over time when you have additional countries and additional groups. Uh, I want to make sure that my, maybe I misspoke or wasn't heard clearly. When I talked about the 13 votes, what I was referring to that if this particular AUMF had been in place in 2001, the one we have before us today, we would have had 13 votes. Uh, Senator Kane has calculated it to be 25 votes, so I, now, I in no way uh, think that us voting on things like this is unimportant. I, I would say just the contrary. This particular AUMF would have required us to take, uh, our staff says at least 13 votes, Kane's staff says at least 25 votes, maybe 30, 29 because of the quadrennial review. So, I think the point is to try to get Congress far more involved. And, and again, I, I, I keep coming back to the fact that if there's anything the administration chooses to do uh, with the powers that they have that we attempt to overcome, it obviously takes a veto-proof majority in, in, in both bodies to keep that from happening. I mean, that's just the way that Congress is set up. So with that, again, I appreciate the, the differences of opinion. I appreciate Senator Merkley uh, getting ready to put forth a, and apparently make a comment before we adjourn. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the, the, the point I wanted to make is if one envisions this draft as requiring those multiple votes, then what makes more sense? Hold the vote before the president is in the field with the forces in order to open the door, or hold the vote afterwards, at which point it not only is after the action, but it requires a supermajority. We have, under the War Powers Act, the ability to respond to emergencies, which gives significant flexibility for the president to act in the time that we would, under expedited procedures, be considering whether to open the door. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's one piece, I think, that is fundamental to the, what, what we're wrestling with. Yeah. If I could, I think this is a good discussion. I know people have other meetings to go to. I, I, I do think the statement, the, the exchange between Senator Young and, Senator, and, and Mr. Bellinger was fact. I mean, I think the prior administration felt they didn't have the abilities to detain folks at Guantanamo and didn't want to do so. And I, I think, in fairness, a lot of people were exterminated instead with drones. I think that's a common understanding of what has occurred and probably still occurring today. If you think about uh, uh, Osama bin Laden, I mean, we did, in fact, on the other hand, go in and get him in another country. But let's say that he was in uh, a country and we decided instead we were going to, to take him out. Um, do you really want Congress to to weigh in on that in advance? So I think there has to be some degree of flexibility when we're de dealing with terrorists that move around. And uh, I think this has been the difficulty. I mean, this is so unlike World War II or so unlike uh, the Korean War or so unlike uh, previous. This is something that likely will go on beyond the time we're here in the Senate, certainly beyond the time I'm here and probably beyond our lifetimes. And I think that's a struggle we're having with giving appropriate flexibility, but at the same time, Congress uh, playing its rightful role. And I don't know if anybody else wants to say anything. Um, with that, we thank our witnesses for being here. Thank you for your contribution, as always. And with that, uh, the record remain open until the close of business Friday. I know you have other jobs, but to the extent you can answer the questions fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it with that. I ask unanimous consent that Senator Paul be recorded as a no walk on the Walcott yeah. nomination yeah. without objection, so ordered. And with that, the meeting's adjourned.